So I hope you've had a rest since we went out. I hope you got some yes. sleep and, uh, you know, uh, gained some weight. <laughs> yeah, all the rest of that. Oh, Very much rested now. I'm, I've had nothing but interviews since I got back and, um, I've been setting up more of the business side of, you know, this thing as well. Yeah. So yeah, I just, and seven year olds, the youngest daughter turned seven today. So I'm just completely wiped. I'll it's, say I said happy birthday, even though I don't know. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. And I've been Binky the clown all day, you know. So if, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's one of those things. But she had a good time. She had a really good great, time. Great. I just, I just jumped into it anyway. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm terrible, terrible at editing. So who knows what part of our conversations will stay in. And I think this, it's nice and natural that way. Um, but, you know, we, we, we've known of each other for a while. We got to meet recently, which was great for me, you know, to, to meet you, to sort of tap in to your brain a little bit and find out, you know, what makes you tick and everything. But of course, a lot of people out there probably don't know, you know, um, a lot about how you got into this genre. So I, I'd just like to start by finding out how you got into cryptozoology. What was the, the defining moment that made you say, yeah, you know, this is for me. This is what I want to, to do. Um, well, my entrance to cryptozoology was basically a literary one. Um, my mother, bless her, she always bought me books on zoology. And uh, every now and again, there would be a cryptozoological work sort of mixed in there somewhere. So I ended up with uh, Bernard Hoiberman's On the Track of Unknown Animals First, yeah. which was, I've got to say, truly changed my life and made me yeah. realise that, you know, there, there probably are things out there that you don't know about. Classic gateway drug. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, also Exotic Zoology by Willie Lee. Or, or Willie Lee, sorry. I, uh, I love that book. Um, anything by Carl Schuker. I ended mm. up with uh, Mystery Cats of the World when I was very young and a couple of other ones. And that obviously led me into a, a very rich, a, a scientific approach towards that. Um, so, yeah, basically books. Books, really, Andy. Well, you know, I think that's... And isn't that the best way to get into it? Because... Yes, it's great to have the clips and the documentaries and everything else that comes along with TV and, and media, social media especially, but there's something of a need for sensationalism to get the target audience on board with those things. So mm -hmm. I always thought the difference between TV and books was that, you know, books could give you the lowdown on what was actually being said or reported about these creatures, whereas TV had to give you some sort of entertainment in the meantime or some sort of big find um yeah. now we had a big chat about your your new book which is coming out the cryptozoology of cats it's coming out really soon with hangover publishing yeah and you know, i've recently got a copy of that i've just started reading it but i'm, I'm fascinated you know, about it and i i guess in a way i realized i've never really thought about you know, what is what is a cryptid cat you know, what, what defines that a cryptid cat. Oh well, it's just uh, it is what it sounds like. Really, it's a it's a it's a cryptid, um, you know, an unknown animal, which closely resembles a a member of the Felidae family, but obviously without biological material, we can't be certain what any cryptid is. So basically, it's 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 a, it's a cryptid that resembles a cat and probably is, but uh, also might not be. And in relation to that, I remember you mentioned uh, feliform mm. cryptids when we were, uh, and of course, you know, there's a hint in the name, feliform yeah. cryptid. But are there other are there types of feliform cryptids that you do you have? I suppose favourites that you're on the fence about as to whether they are cats 
or perhaps something else? Well, the most famous of all the prehistoric survivor category, really. Um, you know, some of those could potentially be something unknown still. I think providing they were elaborated on through folklore, that, that might make that possible. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, the smaller cats are obviously more likely. Um, in fact, there has actually been a discovery of a, a new species of cat not too long ago. I don't know if you're aware of the, uh, the Corsican wildcat. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, for a long, long time, uh, that was debated whether or not that was actually a, known, actually a species in its, in its own right. And I think in uh, this year, March, I think this year, uh, it was finally shown through genetic analysis to, to be its own unique endemic species. Um, but that was known to the shepherds you know, of Corsica for, for generations, where they had all sorts of folklore attached to it. One, one being that it would attack the, the udders of ewes goats, mm. of the, the udders of ewes and goats. Um, whether that behavior is accurate, I, I, I doubt it very much, but they were certainly aware that it was an unusual cat and it has recently turned out to be a, a unique species. So, and yeah. with the Corsican, Corsican wildcat, I mean, is this something that was, and I didn't look into it very deeply, is it something that was observed, that was known about, but it was ignored essentially, as similar to, let's say, you know, the subspecies of, of grass snake that was found in the UK not so long ago, you know, under our noses and thought to be something we were already familiar with. Or is this a cat that's so rare in a country that's pretty well explored that uh, we, we just had no evidence that it existed? For a very, very long time, there was no evidence for it whatsoever. It was just no. known through cryptozoological type evidence. It mm. was known as the, uh, the, uh, the fox cat um, mm. because it's, a, it's unusual morphology, which is, resembles a fox, basically. Um, and then uh, in the early, I think it was the early 19th, no, the late 19th century, uh, early 20th century, they started turning up. And ever since then, there was a debate on whether or not they were actually the, a unique species or whether or not they were derived from the domestic cat. Mm. And uh, the most recent results, which I say was in uh, March, I think this year, uh, categorically stated that the genetic evidence points to them being a, a unique endemic species. Wow. Oh. And what do you think this, this teaches us really, Carl, about, um, about being too overconfident in, in what we know, even within our own countries, you know, the place like the UK or Corsica or any other small environment, especially an island, um, where it does seem to me that um, every so often, you know, something is either rediscovered, especially in island uh, territories that were thought to be extinct, or is found to be a complete unique species like the Corsican cat. And then suddenly everybody, you know, is um, eating humble pie and very excited for a little while again. And, you know, the very next day we're back to, no, we've got everything. This is all there is out there. Mm. You know, that's, that's been the case ever since what Hooverman's called Kuvia's rush dictum. Um, it's very much a biased attitude that there's nothing left to discover at all, mm. despite the fact that new discoveries are fairly regularly made. And do you think that that's more to do with a sort of an inbuilt um, need to satiate uh, ego within mankind? Or is, is this like a protective uh, instinct that we have in the sense that we want to think that we know about everything that's out there because it makes us feel safe subconsciously? Yeah, I think it's probably a bit of both. Only, yeah. And let's talk about that. Now, in your book, you... You know, there, I mean, and it really is. I've only just started leafing through, but it really, really is so varied it, within this subject of um, of cryptid cats. But you indicate that there could 
still be species of large big cats out there that we haven't discovered yet. I mean, how's how's that possible? Well, there are certain places in the world, um, most notably uh, South America, Africa, and some places in Asia, most notably Southeast Asia, which the habitat is still okay, and the populations are, I would say, low enough for something to have got by, but still big enough for them to have been reported. And so we've got our cryptozoological type data for them. Um, in South America, most notably, you've got the sort of like a, considered to be an aquatic sort of uh, saber-toothed cat, which they mm. call um, um, uh, uh, basically a water tiger. That's the name they sort mm. of give it. Uh, and that seems to be some sort of uh, saber-toothed type animal. Mm. Um, but whether or not it actually is, that's debatable because obviously you get different identities put forward. Some, some people might think of it as a, a giant otter or something like that. The, basically, yes. the data we have in cryptozoology is never very specific. It can be open; it's often open to interpretation. So, I think if we, but if we use a biological sort of standard, you know, listen to ecology, listen to known sciences, um, we'll have a better chance of finding something and proving that the cryptozoological methodology does in fact work. And would you say, you know, in relation to that, our behaviour as a cryptozoologists and cryptozoology advocates or enthusiasts such as myself the way that we record uh fact or evidence or you know indications of new species around the world is is very important and therefore has to follow a, a standard of some kind do, do you believe there needs to be a, a sort of a, a new you know a new diktat sent out there almost uh performer if you will where all cryptozoology enthusiasts be they bigfooters or you know uh, people who have cryptic big cats or looking for strange bats whatever it is need to sort of go out there with a list of um <laughs> activities scientific activities that need to be adhered to in every investigation evidence that needs to be sought and recorded um what do you think about that is that something that would help us all yeah i think so i think um well, well, I think there's room for both areas. I think as long as we keep a keep zoo, keep keep cryptozoology close to like its zoological matriarch, if you like, mm. um, we'll have more success. And once we've had more success, I mean, I don't even think of cryptozoology as a science. I, I think of it more as a gateway to to, to zoological discoveries. Mm. You know, if we find something and it doesn't prove to be some sort of elaborate new species, I don't consider that to be a uh, a failure. I think mm. that in terms of cryptozoology, um, that would still be quite successful because, you know, the animal existed. It was unusual enough to be reported. Mm -hmm. It's just that the identity that's been put forward by the individual cryptozoologist, which has become popular, may be wrong. It yes. doesn't mean that cryptozoology itself is wrong. Yeah, so I suppose, you know, the Loch Ness Monster would be a great example of this, whereas, you know, the Plesiosaur series is very, very um, popular. But if we do, you know, one day find a 40-foot-long catfish or eel in the lock that's really just as impressive um absolutely and, however you you did mention to me before you know it's strange that a lot of people would be disappointed by that yeah because a lot of people have polarized views and sort of both in cryptozoology and science you know that uh, something's got to be what they think it is but that you know that kind of misses the point i think uh, cryptozoology as Hoiverman's always said was you know he always considered himself to be like the sherlock holmes of, of, of zoology mm -hmm. And I think that's what cryptozoology is. It's it's a methodology where we can uh, question what things are, go for what we think they are, see what the data tells us, 
And if it's not correct, you know, if it looks like it, something else is responsible for what we look, what we're, the data we're getting, then then so be it. Yeah, absolutely. In your book as well, you talk about um, emerging species of hybrid big cats. Now, mm. that was really surprising to me because, of course, you know, we're all aware of things like ligers and tigons and lepons and, and things like this that uh, occur in captivity in you know in a very restricted mode in a sense you know the active and specialized breeding um programs have to be in place often to, to sex successfully um yeah. create one of these hybrid big cats but you seem to indicate that this is happening in the wild as well and because of that new species may be emerging well it's certainly possible that it has happened at some point in the wild and could have been observed it doesn't mean that all the reports we have of that type of thing, for instance, like the morosi, you know, the spotted lion, mm. it's very unlikely that that would be a new species in its own right. It, it seems very, very likely that it's that it's some sort of unusual mutation where, you know, its its childhood spots are basically stayed on through into adulthood. Um, so that would, that's not a hybrid at all. But um, some of them could still be hybrids. It, it's not impossible. It's not particularly likely that a population would be sustained like that. Um, that's very, very unlikely, but the chances of it happening every now and again is possible. Mm. Yeah, sure. And uh, um, uh, what about things like uh, puma parts? I mean, you, uh, there was talk recently uh, of a sighting of um, in in Britain, of all places, of a puma, an adult puma, and melanistic leopard being seen together, mm. um, and the witness didn't seem entirely sure as to whether he was actually looking at um at two pumas you know one melanistic and one mm. i suppose it one of the <laughs> one natural puma and um you know i i was under the impression that was near impossible especially in the wild that maybe had been achieved once or twice in captivity in the past well, what are your thoughts on that yeah i suppose you've got to ask yourself what you think is more likely i mean the chances of a melanistic puma are very 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 slim mm. but there's no genetic reason why they can't exist okay so you know it, there's a vague vague possibility that it might be correct but the biggest problem i have is is a behavioral issue um leopards and pumas they they, they well it's difficult to say what happened in britain isn't it but you know in general if you put them together they, they would fight they don't get on you know mm. the cats are like that in general you know they, they just can't stand rivals of their own roughly their own size being about um but hybridization has occurred you know we have not occurred well it has happened we've done it in captivity um so i don't know really no i mean it's definitely possible but as far as you're aware there isn't any particular biological reason if say in a sparsely populated environment that's assuming that there are big cats in the uk and and there, there are solitary individuals wandering around it through large territories rarely meeting mm male or female of the same species perhaps these um these tight you know um, biological conditions could could bring these big cats together yeah i mean when cats do mate in the wild it's it's a very rough affair anyway at best of times mm. um so it's it, it's still possible that it could have happened and, it, and there could have been hybrid offspring at some point okay uh, whether or not they're sustained as a population in that way i i, I doubt it yeah, no, I mean, it does seem to be quite an anomaly. Um, and coming on to, to the British big cat situation, uh, he, you know, in, in the UK, um, you do have a, a nice bit in the book about anomalous big cats around the world. 
Mm. But it's so clearly you've looked at the situation in Australia or you know Germany, France, the United States, etc. What do all of these uh, ABCs yeah. have? These anomalous big cats have in common around the world? Is there is there a uniting factor in their presence in these uh, unlikely locales? Only in their appearance. The most observed type of reported type is the obviously the, the big black cat. Mm. Which pretty much anywhere in the world you'll find reports of those, even even in Hawaii, believe it or not. Um, but you know, the question is whether or not the the, the ecology can sustain them as a population. Mm. I mean, the idea is put forward in Britain is that there are sometimes it's put forward that there are thousands of them. You know, mm. which is a lot of cats. There should be more evidence of them if that were the case. Yeah. You know, in the national parks of Kenya, there's only like one leopard in every ten square kilometers. Yeah. Whereas in in Britain, I would expect it to be, you know, it's got to be closer to one in every 500 square kilometers mm. or something like that for them to be out there and still remain a mystery. When we were, um, in relation to that, when we were recently on Exmoor looking for big cats, you mentioned that in a country like the UK, you know, with this limitless prey species especially, and and there being a possible dearth of, of, of big cats, a wide range of uh, or territory would be needed to perhaps find a mate that perhaps these animals could even cover 50 miles or more mm-hmm. as a territory. Now, you know, with a, a territorial size like that in place, perhaps instead of thousands, could we be looking at something like 200? Yeah, that would be a much more reasonable estimate. Yeah. Hmm. And, um, and would you, uh, and similarly to other big cats around the world, would you relate their presence to primarily? to the Dangerous Wild Animals Act of 1976, or do you think there could be other release points throughout history that have also played a part in their presence here? Oh, there absolutely are other release points. It starts really with the Roman Empire when they would bring Mm. big cats here for gladiatorial battles. Um, But yeah, there's been other times throughout history. Victorians would bring them for hunting. Um, The Dangerous Wild Animal Act, like you say, that's another important one. And since then, you know, through the illegal pet trades, I think they just they just keep escaping. Every now and again, they form a base population. Which, if more escapees uh, top up that genetic 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 line, then you know they could survive for much longer than that. But the, the chances of them being sustained just through wild individuals meeting wild sorry wild born individuals meeting wild born individuals and mating and producing viable offspring, I don't think that's the answer to the phenomena as a, as a whole. Yeah, uh, I think the most likely explanation is is that there are fresh escapees that keep escaping, and uh, they're the ones that are them and their and maybe their first second generation offspring are the ones that are reported as genuine big cats. Ah, oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So occasionally, basically, a few more cats enter the the pot, as it were, and uh, bring a bit yeah. more flavour to the stew. And that did intrigue me actually, because I thought, okay, well, look, let's say in nineteen seventy six that. Let's say the 20 big cat owners, 20 big cat owners didn't know what to do with these animals, couldn't keep them, couldn't send them to a zoo and let them go throughout the country. Well, that's 47 years ago. What life cycle does this animal have? Like 12 to 16 years in the wild, something like that? Yeah, much, much shorter time. Much shorter time. Um, And also previously um, docile pets, uh, uh, well, you know, compared to a, a naturally wild animal too, having to go out and learn to fend for itself in the yeah. wild, in the British winters and all the rest of this stuff. 
it always has always troubled me. What chance would they really have of mating and propagating and secretly out of the sight of man uh, and, and human populations rearing cubs in the wild? It seems very, very tough. And yet the sightings seem to increase year on year. And whether that's because there's a, uh, so much awareness of the phenomenon now that every single large cat you see, whether it be a savannah, you know, um, exotic species or a large, um, uh, uh, what are those Norwegian cats called? I forget. Big domestic ones. Oh, like a uh, Maine Coon? The Maine Coon or a large Maine Coon or something like that, which seems to be the photos that we see all the time anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, one of those things getting out and, and scaring, you know, one of the local old biddies, they are being reported more and more. So it's hard to, it's hard to match those two things together. The unlikelihood of the meeting and propagating and having enough fresh genetics to enter into the, you know, the, the fold to keep going after 47 years. And the fact that people are seeing them all the time, you know, yeah. How do we how do we explain that? I think the phenomenon is answered in more than one way. Uh, I think we probably have a genetic imperative that's built into us that tells us that whenever we see a, a quadruped, a dark quadruped at night, we don't know what it is. Yeah, uh, I think it tells us that it's that it's it's a large cat because that is the primary predator of our past from our from our ancestral past. So I think it's like a failsafe where, mm. you know, we're basically told that's what it is and stay away from it, keep safe, stay alive, you know. But that doesn't apply to all of them. Some some reports are very, very credible. And uh, But then again, you know, reports of black cats are the most prominent. I mm. mean, that in itself might suggest limited genetics. You know, it's a recessive gene in leopards, melanism. Exactly. I mean, how common is that in the wild? Not really very common at all, but it would have been common as a as a pet because of its beautiful you know black coat yes. yes it would have been it would have been prominent in its genetics and if there was a limited population in the wild um you would expect that to keep reoccurring you know that would be that that might become the 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 standard okay. type so there's something of a smoking gun there i suppose in in the types of sightings and um I proposed this before and I wasn't the first person to propose. I had no way of really establishing any data to support it. Uh, but yeah, I had an idea a long time ago is could there, could Britain unknowingly be host to one of the highest densities of melanistic leopards in the world? And it was a funny thought, you know, it was a mm. very funny thought because of course there's no way really to prove it, but the number of sightings compared to mm. other countries where the, these, um, these melanistic uh, cats are not uh, common. I thought, well, yes, maybe. Could this weird bottleneck have led to this unlikely situation? Did you think that's a possibility? Or once again, are we seeing, you know, uh, is the beast of Exmoor also the beast of, um, you know, <laughs> four or five other local counties on its, on its normal rounds in its uh, large territory? Well, they certainly have vast ranges, um, especially the puma. I mean, as a species, the puma has the the, the largest range of any carnivore in the Western Hemisphere. Mm. Um, you know, they're found all the way from the very bottom of South America, almost, all, you know, right up into Canada. Um, so that species is is very well suited to could be very well suited to the British climate because you know if you think about it like that it's, it would be quite warm you know not too warm not too cold it would be mm. kind of like Goldilocks's porridge in a way. No, yeah, we're just right. <laughs> exactly. It would be just right. Yeah, it would be just right. 
like uh, like baby bears porridge. Yeah. And I was a dad of young children. And obviously, those that symbolism is very dear to my heart. <laughs> um, well, th- there's something else regarding big cats, of course, and that is it's a cryptic big cats, especially is it's a phenomena all around the world, and it's not just cats that are unknown to science, but it can be you know, also animals that are in the wrong place, you know, somewhere where they're not meant to exist. And that really neatly brings me to your recent expedition to Sumatra, where you actually went in search of the orang pendek and yes. came back with some wonderful evidence of that, which we'll talk about in a bit. But incidentally, you discovered evidence for a cryptic big cat along the way. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I was already aware that there was this feliform cryptid, as I like to call them, um, that was reported from Sumatra through email correspondence with mm-hmm. our guide, Dali Sangra de Putra. Um, he had already told me that there was this strange creature called Paramal Tinker, um, which basically means something along the lines of the creeping tiger. Mm-hmm. It's thought of in the folklore as some sort of were-tiger. It's, 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 sometimes it's considered like a biped, sometimes it's a quadruped. And they give it human-like dexterity, like with it in its limbs. They say it can do human things. It thinks like a human. It's intelligent. Um, yeah, so I basically, when I went out there, I made that a priority to search for. In fact, I've said many, many times that cryptozoologists would do well if they paid attention to cryptic cats maybe over anything else, because I'm sure that you know they have the better chance of being discovered just by their very nature. Um, but yeah, we were out there. It was called Haramal Tinky. Uh, it didn't take us very long before we realized that the reports, the more credible reports at least, were describing something far more biological, far more like a, a standard tiger, if you like. Uh, and then we found tracks. Originally, we thought the tracks belonged to uh, a clouded leopard. And uh, then yeah. eventually, we, we, we found another set of tracks, uh, and which were much, much larger, which were quite clearly from a tiger. And uh, around that time also, uh, I was wandering through the jungle with Richard Freeman and Dali, and... Uh, Dali called out that we he thought the orang pendek was sort of off in the distance, rocking this palm, making this strange sort of chattering noise. Wow! So I said to Dad, I said to Richard, "Oh, I'll run round there and I'll photograph it." Uh, as I ran round, uh, basically I caught the back end of an animal, which at the time I thought, well, it could have been possibly been an orang pendek because it was, you know, it was orangey coloured. Mm. But since then, we actually recorded a tiger on our trail camera uh, from the exact wow. same area. Yeah, and uh, when we got back, we checked out the data online and we checked with the WWF. It turns out that there really are no tigers reported from this particular area of Sumatra. The area is completely data deficient. So we basically use the cryptozoological methodology uh, to provide actual usable ecological data which might benefit tigers in general. So I see that as a cryptozoological success. Fantastic. That I mean, that's that's the bucket list, isn't it? That's the dream... That's a dream find. And I think it really plays into what you said earlier again about finding something other than that which you went to discover. And it's still, it's still a big win. Well, again, I make, I've been saying for many, many years now that cryptid cats have the best chance of discovery. Mm. And, you know, they're, they're, they're perfect cryptids in many ways. They're exciting. You know, they're enigmatic by their very nature. Um, so they must have a good chance of being new species out there to be discovered and i think that cryptozoologists if you spent more attention to that kind of thing i think we would have better chances and we would have more success 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Now let's go back to Sumatra, the Orang Pendic. You know, Richard Freeman has been there <clears throat> a few times. Mm. Um, many people from the UK, in fact, and the United States have traveled there in the past in search of this enigmatic upright ape, you know, which is what we think it might be. Um, is it, is the Orang Pendic sort of a, Little foot of kind? Is it a Bigfoot-like creature? Is that what we're looking at, but on a, a smaller form? Or do you think that we're looking at sort of perhaps even uh, you know a large monkey, like a macaque or something like that? Um, my personal opinion on that would be that it's most likely some sort of given. Um, mm. I think that's the most plausible explanation. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily the case, and we have to follow the data to where it leads rather than pigeonholing. And, uh, yeah, I think that the, the Orang Pendek has a really good chance of being discovered, and it, it seems to be some sort of large animal, some sort of large mammal. Uh, it's probably a, a primate. Um, whether or not it's a prehistoric survivor, some sort of pre pre-human, I, I wouldn't like to say. In fact, we found that in some areas of Sumatra, people would describe it more as a ghost. Mm. And uh, this was tended to, tended to be in, in more lowland areas, uh -huh. uh, whereas we're in the highlands, it was described more like an animal. And in that case, it was described more like an ape. Uh -huh. um, but of course, there is also the reports from the same island of the... Um, of the uh, uh, what's it called, Andy? I've got to try and think what its name is. Now, we're right. a, bit of, a bit of editing here. Um, what was it called? Are you talking about Flores? The or yeah, no, no, the Sumatra, the Orang oh. Cardil, oh. the Orang Cardil. Oh, thank God! But this is a giant animal, isn't it? Well, the Orang Pendek seems to be an ape. It does. Yeah. It does seem to be an ape. Um, but obviously, there are also reports of this Orang Cardil, which seems to be some sort of little human. But if you follow oh, the yes. data back and you follow mm -hmm. the information, no, I've got you, it now. Yeah, yeah, you find quite quickly mm. that they sort of cross over quite, quite, you know. In the folklore so i mean and this actually happens a lot though with with fairy folklore where there seems to be um a little people uh or diminutive pygmy type people in a certain area but also something else that's also small but it has more animalistic traits ascribed to it you know could it be a possibility that they're just as in many archaic societies you know there was one there were one or two archaic coverall terms to describe certain types of creatures you know in the same way that we used to call everything in the ocean a fish mm. etc and that's why they're that there's diminutive stature as well is why they're mingled together they're all mixed together but in fact there could be something very very different in one being an ape and the other being just a, a pygmy tribe of some kind quite possibly but either way it's definitely people need to go out there need to keep looking mm. um, because there is something to discover and uh, it needs to be cryptozoology cryptozoology puts in a lot of work in this in this way in this manner yeah. so we we deserve it so i think that we need to make more of an effort and um oh it. absolutely we have to be the finders that's the yeah. whole point yeah that, that, that <laughs> these scientists need to back off and let us find this shit um <laughs> you know because yeah there aren't a lot of cryptozoology finds out there are there let's face it and one okay i mean let's for example it's very easy to explain that away one most of the funding is given to regular scientists why wouldn't it be you know they're the qualified people out there conducting zoological research and we're i suppose 
the fringe people that um, have the luxury of looking for things that scientists could never get away with looking for. So that's um, that's something special. Um, now, tell us about your evidence for Orang Pendek in Sumatra, though, because you did capture some evidence recently, and you've made a documentary about the whole trip as well, which is very exciting. I think that's coming out quite soon. So what did you find there? Yeah, we found some nice tracks. Uh, we found what seemed to be a, a very small footprint, which had a an opposable type thumb, so opposable toe, if you like. Oh, and uh, we also found what seemed to be a handprint. Uh, it was absolutely enormous in terms of its 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 width. Uh, it had short, stubby fingers, uh, so it clearly wasn't used for climbing about in trees as its primary primary function, if you like. Mm. Um, but it was very, very small, very, very wide, but very small, um, kind of like a, a short, short, stubby-toed gorilla, if you like. Wow. I mean, I mean um, apart from the, you know, the, the obvious uh, differentiation with a human footprint, would you say that the the primary portion of the of the foot was human-like, or at least you know, meant for, um, you know, upright bipedal? locomotion yeah. it was it was plantigrade without mm. a doubt it was you know it was designed for walking on the, the bottoms mm. of the flat of its foot um it did say there was evidence of a an opposable thumb mm. um but it didn't look like any any known species that i've ever seen um it was very very unusual wow. uh, but yeah that's the best evidence that we found i would say for the orang pendek in sumatra and did this seem like uh, this was fresh evidence? This was a fresh print? Yeah, a couple of days old. In fact, I heard something. I heard a really strange sort of call coming from the same area about two or three days before, mm. um, which oddly enough, has not really been recorded before, not been reported before. It it, it sounded like the, the barking sound of a gorilla, um, mm. but, but not a huge animal, you know, a much smaller animal, which interestingly enough has, hasn't really been reported before. And, when Dali said no, I've heard that. in the woods, in the forest that he told us to go check out, uh, that was a completely different sound. It was more like a, a cackling, laughing kind of sound. So what I heard, I don't really know what that was, but uh, it was roughly in the direction where the tracks were found. That is very, very interesting. And a great find. And I assume you guys probably have a cast of, of the, the, the print as well. So that's... Um, we do, yeah. Yeah, and will there be? I mean, will there be castings available at some point in the near future as well for for people to buy or to examine? I should think so. Um, at the moment, we're having them three D, three D scanned, and uh, Jeff Maldron will be checking them out and giving his verdict on them first. And, okay, um, wow. Based on that, though, yeah, sure. I mean, this is basically called. This is a really, really successful expedition. You know, you yeah, find evidence so. of two cryptids <laughs> in one in one locale, or at least one country, mm. and um, and come back with the goods. Uh, what's what's the name of the documentary uh, about your expedition? We haven't actually decided yet what we're going to call mm. it. Okay. Um, it's something along the lines of you know expedition expedition Sumatra or something like that. And um, is is this going to be uh, who's that who's that being released by? Uh, that will be through Dragonfly Films. Great. Okay, fantastic. Any ideas when you're, you're, you're hoping to get it out and then people can, can get online and, and have a watch? Uh, as soon as possible, really. Uh, it's just finding time to get everything done. Uh, the director over at Dragonfly is editing it as we speak. 
Um, wow. So as soon as possible, really, you know, hopefully we'll get it out for, for uh, the end of this year, hopefully, fingers crossed. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Now, you know, searching, at least searching in the Far East, it's been one of my one of my dreams, I think, for a long time. I always really wanted to go to, to the Shenongja Forestry District to look for the Yeren or, oh, yeah. um, uh, you know, to the, the um, uh, I think it's the Chenang Valley Peninsula in the... Uh, in pal i believe it's in nepal mm -hmm. to look for the telma um yeah. which is that diminutive yeti that little yeti that's supposed to inhabit that area and stories like yours about the orang pendek you know so many of these sightings are similar all over the world i start to wonder well you know could that be a you know a, a large form of upright gibbon as well and could the jenjadi also be something similar and going back to fairy folklore in Europe and, and Britain, could we have had some kind of population of, uh, hairy fairy folk as well that would, you know, that would entered into our fairy pantheon in ages of old simply just because people didn't realize what it was they were looking at as a species? Yeah. Well, I think it's more likely that we probably met them in our prehistoric past as we mm. arrived, you know, on our, on our way to Europe. Um, I don't know whether or not they were actually here, you know, in fact, that the way that the folklore is attached to them implies that there may be some sort of folk memory from somewhere else. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, I don't know, you know, really we're talking about severely data deficient cryptids. So we just need more, we need more information. It's just speculation until we have some sort of biological material. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, coming back to that, in fact, uh, about the data that we need and folklore, do you find, and you mentioned something akin to this in your, your experience in Sumatra, about the knowledge in the lowlands compared to the knowledge in the, the, the uplands being folkloric to real life, mm. you know, experience, do you find that folklore tends to develop where one or two sightings have occurred and then there's an absence and the story grows yeah. around the creature, whereas where the creature is regularly known, the stories tend to center around um, ex just ex general experiences with a real flesh and blood animal. I do. And I think that that's a good, a good differentiation there. We can focus on what seems to be more plausible in terms of biology. Uh, obviously, in the lowlands, they seem to be describing something that they either see extremely rarely or it's just word of mouth because you know word of mouth can travel as far as the animals migration themselves mm -hmm. um often further in fact so yeah but it's it seems like in the lowlands it they're, they're describing something far more folkloric you know an echo if you like of the real animal whereas in the highlands it seems that that's the best place to find the animals themselves they seem to be associated with that kind of terrain mm -hmm. I, I remember hearing a reading uh, from uh, the deceased uh, researchers, as Jordi Magran, as far as from the Chitral Mountains, that um, they're Pakistan and Afghanistan in the Himalayas, that, yes, once again, the lowland people had more of a spiritual assignee, assignment to these particular creatures, the Barmanu, yet saw them yeah. rarely, whereas the upland yeah. people who regularly saw them just called them creatures. Well, I think this differentiation is solid data. Mm. The fact that it's, it's it occurs all over the place says that we should definitely be focusing our efforts in montane areas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, 
coming back to to cryptozoology itself, you know, I'm always interested in researchers' opinions about the um, the scene that we're in, the situation that we're in, the moment, in, and their projections for the future of cryptozoology. So, I really want to ask you: you know, Do we have a bright future ahead of us in cryptozoology, or are we sinking into a sort of P.T. Barnum-esque pit? of 19th century circus sensationalism when it comes to cryptids because of social media, because of the need for content and you know, various television documentaries, etc. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we, well, we do need to be very careful. At the end of the day, since the, like, since the 1950s, cryptozoology has been trying to make its way into mainstream science and mm. be accepted as a legitimate uh, study in itself. Again, I don't think of it as its own science. I think it's more useful if we think of it as a gateway to zoological discovery. Mm. You know, it, it, it becomes zoology if we use the data in a responsible way. Um, it, that doesn't mean that the searching for things that are not necessarily flesh and blood, that doesn't mean that it's a, a useless endeavour. In terms of folklore, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Mm. Um, but I think if we want to show actual success and we want to actually finally break break free from this uh, pseudo-scientific uh, attitude, then I think we need to focus more on the more biologically plausible cryptids. Um, mm. Yetis, you know, Orang Pendek, that kind of thing. So no werewolves and dogmen then, and, or um, creepers or nightcrawlers and... and well, you know, they are fascinating stuff. and I'm glad that there are researchers mm. that investigate that. Um, yeah. But I think that if we focus on that... We, we really do minimise our chances of ever ever showing the value of cryptozoology. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I know we've got to close out, but I really wanted to just finally, just as the last question, come back to the prehistoric survivors. So, you know, I think of the Mypolina or the um, Ipa, which I think is more or less the same thing probably, and other water tigers that may possibly be uh surviving prehistoric survivors you know saber-toothed mm. cats for want of a yeah. better word are these stories quite generally dispersed throughout areas of the world or are there certain continents and regions where they where they uh, predominate it's mainly uh south america and africa predominantly uh -huh. um there are some reports from china and to say there's also a report from of something called the Chigao from Sumatra, which seems to be like a, a little saber tooth, if you like, if that's what it is. Um, but yeah, mainly uh, in terms of South America, Brazil, Brazil is a, a reoccurring place where you mm. see, keep getting reports, and uh, Central Africa as well. Central Africa is a bit of a hot spot. Um, you, in, in 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 South America, they tend to be considered more aquatic animals, mm. whereas in Africa, you sort of get two types where one of them is sort of, again, it's considered to be an aquatic animal. That's often called the water lion, or when they're slightly smaller, they're called water yeah. leopards. But they also have the mountain tigers, which seems to be, a again, some sort of saber-toothed type animal, but this time associated with mountainous areas and not so much swampland. Wow. And I would say the latter, latter has, has a better chance because it's it doesn't violate too many laws of biology. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I was wondering about that the, the water tiger aspect you know i mean the jaguar is very comfortable in water and so yeah. to a certain point it is a tiger too so you know could could this animal have just adapted to ambush 
you know, ambush tactics, ambush predation, you know, based yeah, upon you know, emerging from the water and or at least using it as a cover to sneak up on its prey. Yeah. I would say it's probably more likely that an animal would, rather than leaping out of the water to grab somebody, mm. is grabbing people and dragging them into the water. Mm. Um, like you say, a jaguar will do that anyway. They're mm. very, very adept swimmers. In fact, I've seen a, a footage recently of a jaguar dragging an anaconda from a uh, from a lake. Oh wow! So <laughs> they're very, you know, they're very perfectly capable in water. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm more afraid of a jaguar than I would be of a tiger, really. Um, you know, in the same way as I'd be more afraid of a bull shark than a than a great white. Um, you know, they just seem to have, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They just seem to have that that devastating, uh, you know, predatory ability. Um, and just finding people go, you know, obviously people listening to this are going to want to know about the book. When is the book coming out? Where can they find it? And it's more especially they want to get in touch or they want to find out more information about you where can they find you well my email my personal email is carmarshall83 at live.com uh, they can always get me there um what was the other one Andy? i forgot what you said can we do that again and the book yeah, yeah yeah absolutely just um just one second Deja vu. yeah go for that so i i suppose the question really for everybody before you go is is when and where is the book coming out? Where will it be available? When can they get it? And more especially, how can they get in contact with you if they want to you know, share sightings or ask questions about your research? Yeah, the, the, the book is being published by Hangar One, which is Doug Hijack's company, um, eminently in terms of time. Hopefully by Christmas would be great. Um, right. And if they want to get hold of me, the best way to do that was through my personal email address, which is carmarshall83 at live.com. Fantastic. I can't, it's been awesome speaking to you and especially after our, our deep dive into, you know, expeditioning around the mm. southwest of England recently, which was very, very, very good fun. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. You're welcome, Andy. Pleasure as always.